doesn't take much to uh, create a problem, especially in a bad economy. And uh, the consequences of there being a problem are often disastrous. Hello, and welcome to today's episode of Invest in the West, where we talk about investing strategies and real estate-related topics in the western part of the United States. I'm Matt Williams, and I'm here with my co-host, Nicholas Cook. Our guest today is Steve Bennett, an attorney focusing on real estate and business law with Farlow Auto Wit. He's joining us today to discuss entity formations in real estate and some of the strategies used to protect your investments through those entities. Steve, thanks very much for being here with us. Really appreciate it. Welcome to the show. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and how long you've been in business and how you got into real estate law. Well, thanks, uh, Matt. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me and uh, be happy to, to tell you about my background. And um, I've been in law practice for 42 years now. Hard to believe it's been that long. Uh, my entire career, I've been working in downtown Portland uh, in uh, uh, private law practice. Um, over the years, I've gotten to work with a number of clients that were investing in real estate, various types of real estate. And, uh, you know, that's the, the, the way you see different uh, transactions come together and uh, you, you gradually uh, become more and more uh, familiar with the nuances of owning and investing in real estate. So um, I, uh, I enjoy working with those clients a lot. There's always something new and interesting in every transaction and uh, always interesting to uh, learn about new developments in the field as well. Well, great. Uh, your uh, experience will be very valuable for us today. Now, our audience is really a wide variety of, of investment-minded people, and one aspect of their real estate portfolio is protecting the asset. An LLC seems to be the most common, especially for those focusing on you know, growing their portfolio in the beginning. What is an LLC from the perspective of a real estate investor, and why would you set one up? Okay, so an LLC is a limited liability company. And uh, for, for starters, I will point out that they haven't been around that long, at least not in uh, the United States. Uh, limited liability companies were around for uh, over 100 years throughout the rest of the world. But in the United States, they only became popular in about the last 20 or 30 years. And in fact, Oregon's LLC law is only about 20 years old. Uh, but in that time, uh, investors quickly uh, flocked to using uh, LLCs to own their investment properties. And for good reason. Uh, an LLC is a great way to limit liability uh, of the individual owner or owners. Uh, so they, instead of directly owning the property, they have an LLC that they own, and then they have their LLC be the owner of the property. And this is beneficial because in the unlikely event of a claim, a liability uh, arising in connection with that property, the, personal, the person that owns the uh, LLC uh, generally does not have personal liability. So it's a way to shield the individual from liability pertaining to their property. Now, there's exceptions and, and lots of conditions, of course, like with anything, but the general idea is to limit their liability. 
You know, it's interesting that you mentioned uh, the insurance aspect of it um, obviously comes into play quite a bit as kind of a first line of defense. Uh, would you agree with that? Yes. I always tell clients your best and first line of defense against a liability is having insurance. You know, it's pretty inexpensive to have very, very high limits. And I have to tell you, in my uh, 42 years, I think I could probably count one or two instances where a claim exceeded the potential uh, or the potential claim exceeded the liability limits. It's just very, very rare that claims get that high. Okay. Now, um, obviously, an LLC is a specific type of entity. We work, uh, we know that, you know, we work with partners on projects and different people get together. I know there are certainly different ways to form partnerships and entities that hold a property. Can you go over the differences and some of the varied types um, of entities that investors use to hold properties and the benefits and detriments of those? Yes. Um, and and I, I will say that uh, there was more variety in how multiple parties would co-own investment properties in the past, but it's really kind of funneled down to limited liability companies. But just for comparison, uh, the, the two other formerly common choices were using a corporation to own the property uh, or using a partnership. And the problem with the partnership is that there's uh, going to be unlimited liability amongst all the general partners, even if it's a limited partnership and the limited partners don't have unlimited liability, the general, there has to be at least one general partner in a limited liability uh, partnership, a limited partnership. And so uh, that's not a great choice because uh, it gets complicated to have a general partner with unlimited liability. Uh, in the old days, there were, used to be uh, you know, complicated structures where the general partner was a C corporation uh, uh, so that nobody would be personally liable but that ends up generating a lot of tax returns and accounting records and unnecessary complication. Uh, the other choice is that properties were held inside a corporation. And uh, that works great to limit liability. It's also great for uh, centralizing management and, and having a continuity of ownership pass along to the next uh, owner. The problem with a corporation is, though, that in general, they create a, a potential double tax. That is, uh, property gets um, generates income at the corporate level, and the corporation pays income tax on its profits. And then when the corporation goes to pay dividends to the individuals, they too pay income tax. So that double tax problem is an issue. Now, double tax can be greatly reduced by having the corporation make a subchapter F election. So the corporation could be an S corporation instead of a regular C corporation. But that, too, has its drawbacks, and not every corporation qualifies to be an S. So that's not a great solution either. For these reasons, most investors, when there's, especially when there's multiple parties, use an LLC. Interesting, interesting. Well, thanks for being with us here, Steve. Um, you know, this, I'm Nick. We've met before, and I just wanted to kind of touch base on a common question that we actually get from a lot of our clients and potential investors oftentimes is, you know, people are obviously worried about liability protection. That's why they use entities. But, you know, should they be putting, you know, essentially a property into, you know, a separate entity each time, whether it's a corporation or LLC? Um, should they all be in one, you know, entity? Like, what is your uh, direction for them on that? Well, that's a good question. Um, uh, we, we are often asked, should there be a separate silo, so to speak, for each individual property? And 
you know, there's a trade-off there. And so I always ask clients to consider uh, what all the, of their priorities are. It's absolutely true that um, if, you're, if you have multiple uh, valuable properties, uh, you'll benefit from having a separate LLC for each one. So those separate silos can prevent uh, cross liability sometimes. So for example, if you have two apartment buildings and something goes terribly wrong on one apartment building, you may lose that apartment building uh, in the process, but at least your other apartment building will be protected uh, if you had two separate li uh, limited liability companies. Uh, the drawback, of course, is that you've got more entities to manage and more entities to uh, have tax returns filed for, and more accounting fees, and uh, I'll just say more red tape and headache. Uh, so if what you've got are, say, three very simple single-family residential rental properties, you may not want to go to the trouble of having a separate LLC for each individual property. On the other hand, if you have um, five very valuable um, multi-unit apartment buildings, uh, it might just make sense to have a separate LLC for each one. So there's sort of a spectrum of issues to consider. Yeah, yeah. And, th and that makes sense. I mean, I guess, um, do you have any sort of guidance or kind of kind of rules that people follow typically when they think about like maybe how much, you know, is the tipping point for valuation or equity in a building? You know, if they have, you know, three rental properties and combined, they have, you know, 200,000 equity versus somebody who's got a million in equity. I mean, do you typically have some kind of rules that people can follow, which say like, hey, when you've got about this much valuation, it's really time to start a new entity? Yeah, I do. I mean, Obviously, it's it's not an exact science, but I, I tell clients, look, if, if a few hundred thousand dollars is is your equity in these properties, it's time to start thinking about uh, separating them out into separate uh, silos. Uh, but for somebody that's just getting started and say they've got, you know, uh, $25,000 of equity in each property, they're obviously starting small and it probably doesn't make sense to incur the extra expense somewhere between those two um, in extremes uh, is sort of a spectrum of risk tolerance and and complexity tolerance. So it really uh, depends on what the individual's preferences are. Yeah, and that makes sense. You know, I know that when um, you know I got started in real estate about 15 years ago, I was trying to figure out should I start you know an entity? You know, should it be you know an LLC? You know, an S corporation? And I remember going to an attorney and asking them, and they said, well, you know, you really should talk to a CPA about which one's best. And then I would go to the CPA and they would say, you know, you really should talk to an attorney about which one was best. So it's kind of this circular conversation. Um, you know, people seem to often be confused about whether or not they should have an LLC or an S corporation. Do you have any comments on like why someone would go with one over the other? You know, uh, it's a very close call for the vast majority of investors. Uh, you could have an LLC uh, or you could have, you can have an S corporation. Um, uh, sometimes entities don't qualify for S status. One of the most common problems we see is that um, uh, there's say two or three people that want to get together and co-own a property, uh, but one of them wants to put it in the name of their trust and trusts cannot be shareholders of a sub S corporation. Uh, or say, for example, they weren't a U.S. citizen. Uh, 
again, a, a non-U.S. citizen cannot be a shareholder of an S corporation. So there are some technical rules in S corporations that make them unavailable sometimes. Uh, but if you don't have those kind of problems, I think it's a very close call as to whether or not you should choose an S corporation versus an LLC. Um, one other drawback to an S corporation is it's a it's what we call a fragile election, meaning you can have a corporation that elects subchapter S treatment, everything is going along fine, but one of the owners makes a mistake. And the mistake they might make is transferring their ownership interest to a non-qualified owner, like a trust or like another corporation. And so uh, unbeknownst to everybody else, that individual that made the transfer has just uh, disqualified the company from continuing its S status. So um, that's a, a risk with an S corporation, whereas with a LLC, you don't have to worry about that. The LLC is always going to qualify for LLC treatment and, and uh, enjoy the benefits of that. Have you run into situations? I know a few years ago I, I found out because I wasn't aware, but uh, and maybe you have some insight on this, but that an LLC can elect to be taxed as an S corporation. I realize you know tax isn't your area, but have you seen seen that happen very often? Yes, and it's actually become more and more popular. Um, I still admonish clients that you have the same uh, risks that your S election in an LLC is going to get uh, canceled or. Uh, revoked because one of the owners uh, did something wrong by transferring their ownership interest to a non-qualified owner. Uh, so we still have those risks with an LLC electing to be taxed as an S corporation. Uh, but I know that some accountants are big fans of that approach. And uh, I encourage clients that uh, hear that to discuss it with their accountant and get to the bottom of what uh, choice is better for them. So one of the things that you were kind of pointing out is just kind of the administrative burden of having a lot of different entities that comes along with, you know, separating your properties out. But, you know, for people who are wanting to really grow a portfolio over time or have developed a portfolio over time, is there a way to like consolidate your entities with some sort of umbrella entity potentially to just simplify some of that administrative burden you're talking about? Yes, um, you still have uh, a certain amount of administrative burden if there are separate LLCs. You can't get around the fact that uh, each LLC has to file its annual report with the state and pay its annual you know, renewal fee. It's not a big deal, but um, it's just one more thing to, to be aware of that you have to do. Um, each LLC, is, if it's got multiple owners, it's going to have its own separate tax ID number, so you'll have to keep track of which tax ID number is associated with which entity. Um, and uh, other than that, I, I think of just the general uh, bookkeeping and management headaches, challenges, if you will, uh, of keeping track of who is the manager of each entity, who are the owners. And yes, you can reduce some of that burden by having sort of a parent LLC as the owner of all the individual LLCs. I, I don't, Personally, I'm not a big fan of that. I don't think it solves the problem. It just uh, psychologically, I guess, creates a, a, the impression that there's a nice, neat consolidation. Uh, and I will add, of course, that for income tax purposes, uh, a, um, a, an investor who owns several LLCs 
will usually qualify for filing consolidated returns if the LLCs all have the same ownership, uh, meaning the same three people own uh, the same five entities, then yes, they're going to qualify for a consolidated tax return and not have to file multiple returns. Uh, but that's pretty unusual. So that's not uh, that great of a, an advantage. One last thing I should mention when it comes to income tax returns, uh, if an investor is the sole owner of his LLC, that LLC is what the IRS calls a disregarded entity. So a one owner LLC doesn't even file income tax returns. It's totally invisible for income tax purposes, and yet it's still very much uh, in place and effective to limit liability. So if you've got a, a true single owner LLC, uh, the tax burden is less, is way lower. Got it. Got it. And so I guess a couple kind of questions, you know, related to, you know, these entities and so forth. I mean, with a single member LLC, you know, it sounds like if they're, uh, you know, basically not showing up for tax purposes, it just kind of passes through to their personal return. One of the main reasons people obviously put these, you know, properties and assets into entities is for liability protection. Are you in a situation if you're a single member, you know, LLC that you actually maybe have less liability protection than you would if you had maybe two people in an LLC? I mean, do you, do you see any reductions in, in liability protection for single member LLCs? No, I don't. And theoretically, the LLC law should be pre uh, preventing personal liability uh, for a one person LLC, just as very much as effective as if it were a multiple owner LLC. There should be no difference whatsoever there. And I've never seen or heard of that being an argument for um, uh, trying to assert personal liability against the owners. Do you see that ever like show up with corporations just because I know in some cases, probably rare cases, but like, you know, the officers of a corporation can be held personally liable for things that happen within an entity. Does that at all come up for maybe somebody who's got a single member S corporation or is that also not something people need to worry about? Well, I'll say it, I'll answer it this way. If, um, if, uh, an S corporation is well run, is well organized and treated as a separate ent entity by its owner. Uh, the fact that it's got one owner or 10 owners theoretically should make no difference. But I will say as a practical matter, the one owner company, whether it's an LLC or an S corporation is often not run carefully. In other words, the one owner that owns the entity sometimes doesn't feel he's got to do a very good job in keeping separate books and records, and maybe he runs some personal expenses through the company and uh, doesn't have the formalities of uh, minutes and resolutions, mainly because there's nobody else there to object to not having those things. And so uh, an owner can get kind of um, careless. And in doing so, the owner creates the risk that the entity will be disregarded for liability purposes. Uh, when we uh, when we talk about that for corporations, there's a whole doctrine of law called piercing the corporate veil. And piercing the corporate veil is a real thing. That actually happens in lawsuits when a claimant is trying to assert personal liability against the owners of a company that failed to observe the corporate corporate formalities, uh, separate books and records and tax returns and all that. Um, 
And in, a, in other words, the owners just treated the corporation as their own personal pocketbook. In those cases, courts will pierce the corporate veil and allow personal liability to be pursued against the owners. Okay. Well, I'm, that, I'm sure that's frightening for, for a lot of people to hear. And uh, I'd like to probably unpack that a little bit later here in our conversation. Um, I guess one of the things, though, just kind of since we're obviously talking about these entities, you know, people they're important. They protect liability. What does it typically cost somebody, you know, most people, if they're setting up just a, you know, small LLC or, you know, corporation, um, you know, through someone like you, I mean, what can they expect to kind of spend? So that's a good question. Um, in my experience, I, I see fees from anywhere from $500 to a couple thousand dollars um, for the lawyer's fee in, a, in helping to set up uh, either an LLC or a corporation. In general, I will say it's simpler and easier to set up an LLC as a general rule. There's exceptions, but uh, the vast majority of time, the investor uh, comes in and it's either one investor or maybe two or three investors. Uh, they're going to end up paying probably a thousand to fifteen hundred dollars to have their articles prepared uh, to form the entity and to have a basic operating agreement. Those are the two main documents they need to get going. The operating agreement um, is really a partnership agreement. And so that can be as simple as they want it to be um, or as complex and comprehensive as they want it to be. That usually is what gets expensive is, is having a well-prepared, detailed operating agreement. But to give you the idea, um, uh, general in general, that fee range is what I, I see most investors initially spending uh, in order to get their, their very simple LLC formed and up and running. Um, and if it's a one-person LLC, you're at the bottom end of that spectrum because there's just very little need for complexity. The operating agreement doesn't exist. You don't have to have an operating agreement for a one-owner LLC. And uh, you save a lot of expense that way. Yeah, you know, I, I argue with myself quite a bit, so I can see how there could be some complications in my one <laughs> one person uh, LLC. Uh, you know, a lot of our clients, Steve, started out, you know, where they lived in a home, they bought their first house, and they move out, and they keep that as a rental, and it's in their name. And then they move on to the next property, they live in that for a few years, and they move out. Now they've got two single family homes that they don't live in, and one that they do. And then as they start to grow their portfolio, these beginner investors look back and say, okay, well, now what do I do? Am I, am I converting these into an LLC or, or into some type of entity? Do I leave them outside of an entity? Do I have to sell them to buy a different property within the entity? Is there a way to convert from a primary, um, or I should say a personally owned into an entity owned asset? Well, yes, it's very simple. Once they move out and they decide to start renting their former home, uh, it's a very simple matter to deed that home into an LLC. Um, legally speaking, it's a simple process. The, the tricky part is that uh, lenders will have something to say about that. So typically you move out of your home and the home mortgage that you had on the property is, is still has a balance on it. Uh, and if you try to transfer that property, even to an LLC, you might find that the lender will call the loan due. And that's because almost all loans have what's called a due on sale clause, which is a, a very broad uh, restriction in a loan document that applies to far more than just sales. 
It really applies to the transfer of any interest in the property, uh, whether it's a sale or a gift or just a transfer into an LLC. So the big holdup on these things is uh, the lender. Um, if, if we don't have to worry about a loan against the property or somehow we get the lender's consent to put the property into an LLC, then it's a simple matter to do that. And it's not a bad idea. Um, <clears throat> good way to limit liability. And um, if you don't mind the, the slight amount of red tape for uh, owning property in an LLC, that's, that's not a bad thing to do. But again, I always recommend as the first and best line of defense, having liability insurance with good high limits. So, you know, and, and the due on sale clause, obviously, that's an important thing to always consider. Um, you know, it's something that people talk a lot about. I think it's kind of the boogeyman of, you know, a lot of real estate deals. I know, especially, you know, back, you know, probably 20 years ago and probably even currently, you see a lot of subject to deals um, where people maybe are taking over properties over existing mortgages because, you know, in, in probably historical cases, there's favorable financing, obviously, with rates being where they are maybe a little bit less incentive, but just from a, your experience, because obviously you've got, you know, a broad depth of experience. Have you seen many lenders actually exercise those due on sale clauses when people put their properties in entities? Is that something they really need to worry about? Um, I haven't. Well, good question. When, when uh, owners simply transfer the property to the LLC, I, it's not common. It's pretty uncommon that the lender will raise the objection. In my experience, a number of clients have simply transferred their properties to an LLC without regard to whether the lender would consent. And in those cases, believe it or not, I think it's rare that a lender on their own initiative will raise their hand and object. Uh, the theory is that lenders may not know. And if they do know, they may not care. Uh, but uh, it is true that a lot of clients do that and they don't ever hear from the lender and everything continues on just fine. The real problem is that there's a risk. And in the small minority of cases where I have heard of clients transferring property to an LLC and then the lender objects, the consequences can be significant because if the lender objects, the lender is essentially saying, you have to refinance the loan. We're not going to let you keep the existing loan on the property. Now, in today's environment, maybe refinancing at a lower rate sounds like it's a tolerable exercise to go through. But when you add up loan fees and the headache of whether the property qualifies and uh, maybe you've had uh, uh, your own uh, setbacks financially that, that uh, downgrade your credit rating, maybe it's a bigger deal uh, than you'd like to deal with. So um, I always tell clients, look, if you're willing to take the risk that you might have to refinance this property, then yeah, you go ahead and transfer to an LLC. But if that's not the case, you are, you're either going to want to get that lender's consent ahead of time or just stay put and not transfer the property into an LLC. Uh, incidentally, I'll just add that um, uh, I think it's rare that borrowers get the lender's consent. Um, the biggest problem is communication. And that's because these lenders they sell the loan. They don't own the loan anymore. And so you try to reach the bank that made the loan to you and you find out that they say, we're not even the people to talk to. You, you got to go find out who, who holds the loan. And, and even then there's going to be a lot of channels of communication. You'll have to track down people and try to get their consent. And even when you do track them down, they're not going to grant it. 
So I tell clients, don't get your hopes up that you can go out and just easily get the lender's consent. Well, and you know, those are some really good points, Steve. A couple other things I'd add too. I mean, you, you've really got to have a checklist of different people to check in with. I mean, obviously you want your homeowner's insurance policy to uh, note that it, the LLC now, instead of you personally, uh, title insurance, as I understand, can be also be impacted um, as far as your coverage, because when you purchase the property under one policy of your name, and then it um, ends up that there's a title issue, but the um, the insurance policy was under your name and not the new LLC, who's who's the current owner. That could be an issue. And then you'll also want to um, make sure you're modifying any of your will or anything like that. If it says, you know, they get such and such uh, address, but the actual uh, entity perhaps wasn't included in that, that, that may cause an issue as well. Is that is that correct? Yes, those are really good points. And I'm smiling because a lot of people don't think of all those things. It's good that you're mentioning them. Uh, they they always seem to be so focused on whether the lender is going to object. But you're right. There's all these other ramifications of transferring property into an LLC. Great. Well, uh, thank you all for joining us so far. We're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. And we'll be right back. Every real estate transaction is an investment. Whether you're buying your first home, selling your current home, or looking for an investment property, you're spending hard-earned money and building wealth. Matt Williams and his team have the tools to make every real estate experience a great one. Unlike other realtors, Matt and his team have industry expertise and resources that save you money and simplify the process. If you're thinking of buying or selling a home or want to work with a true professional to invest in real estate, go to bisonproperties.com to learn more about Matt Williams and his team. That's B-I-S-O-N properties.com. And we're back. Welcome back. Steve Bennett is uh, here discussing still some um, entity strategies for us as real estate investors. And we thank him again for uh, continuing to sit with us here as we kind of dig into some of the logistics. Hey, Steve, we're glad to have you. This has been you know, super helpful and obviously, you know, critical to being successful with, you know, investing. You don't want to go through all the risk and not get any of the reward because you made some mistakes along the way, um, which actually leads into a point earlier that you were talking about, um, which was the kind of ominous piercing the corporate veil kind of idea Maybe you could unpack that a little bit and talk about things that people need to be mindful of in terms of maintaining the entity and, you know, how, you know, essentially to make sure that they're protecting themselves um, when they're out there investing. Yes. So um, investors uh, are usually well advised to put their investments into a limited liability company. They could choose to use a corporation as long as they make a subchapter S election for the corporation. Um, but I will point out that a corporation uh, has a little bit more ongoing red tape. And if that red tape that we have to deal with in considering whether there's a risk that somebody will try to pierce the corporate veil. So just to back up, piercing the corporate veil uh, is what happens when a creditor um, somebody that has a claim against uh, the individuals that own the company, that, that creditor uh, goes to court and, and asks a court to uh, disregard the corporate shell limiting their liability, uh, limiting the liability of the owner. And, the, and the, the grounds for doing so 
usually are that the owners of the corporation failed to follow corporate formalities. And by that, I mean, say the owners um, failed to pay their annual registration fees, and so the corporation has been uh, delinquent with the state, or maybe the corporation doesn't file tax returns so that the owners simply reported all the financial activity on their own personal 1040s instead of having a corporate tax return filed. Another example is the corporate owners may not bother with the formality of annual minutes and resolutions to create the ongoing record of who the officers and directors are and whether there's been financial uh, events that needed shareholder or director approval. There's all these formalities that uh, sometimes owners ignore. And, you know, when uh, creditors are trying to assert a claim to pierce the corporate veil, the stakes are high because if those uh, formalities weren't followed and a court allows the corporate veil to be pierced, we're talking personal liability of the owners of the company who would have been sheltered from personal liability by the corporate uh, entity. But if the veil is pierced, so to speak, then a court will allow the creditor to have their judgment against the individual owners, which is a scary thing. Yeah, no, that, that definitely is scary. And, you know, I heard, and maybe this is a myth, um, but I remember hearing a story a while ago where someone said that somebody had their corporate veil pierced and lost that liability protection because they were signing checks for the entity and not recognizing the capacity they were in as, you know, an officer of the corporation. And so, you know, basically when they were writing these checks, they would just sign their name. They wouldn't say like as officer or whatever it would be. Um, and that that led to a corporate veil being pierced. I don't know if that minor of a detail can actually prompt that or if that's more of just a myth kind of floating around out there. Well, I would say it this way. It's one factor. And, and if that was the only factor, because if, if the uh, corporate officer was signing corporate checks and not putting after their signature, comma, treasurer, for example, uh, that alone, I don't think would ever lead to a corporate to a court saying that the corporate veil is pierced. Usually, though, what happens is that's one of several factors. And when you take them all together, the court says collectively, this entity did not observe the corporate formalities, the separateness of its existence. And so therefore, we're going to treat it uh, as the alter ego of the individual owner is one of the phrases that the court uses in piercing the corporate veil. But that's, I, I would emphasize that it's pretty unusual. I always tell my clients, look, if you just make a reasonable effort, maybe it's not perfect, but a reasonable effort to follow the formalities of either your corporation or your LLC, um, you're going to be fine. Uh, incidentally, with an LLC, there are less formalities to follow. Um, the statutes are clear that a corporation is supposed to have uh, officers and directors and annual minutes. But with a LLC, there's not the same rule. There is no requirement that you have annual minutes or resolutions. So you literally can file and form the LLC and make a one-time uh, election of who is going to be the manager if you're going to have a manager of the LLC. And then you can more or less ignore those records and conduct the business without worrying about ongoing red tape every year other than paying the annual 
renewal fee with the state of, of where you're formed. Okay. Well, that's good to know because uh, I know that uh, with that myth floating around, people have been a little worried about being you know, squeaky clean there. Um, so the other thing, too, that comes up a lot, especially with the type of people that, you know, we're working with is, you know, sometimes, you know, they, they are not sure where to get started. But naturally, where they look to is, you know, friends and family, maybe some colleagues to invest in real estate, real estate versus working with, you know, strangers, people they don't know. Um, can you touch on some of the differences in how those investments are maybe set up versus, you know, uh, like when you know people versus when you don't, maybe some of the stumbling blocks people should be uh, aware of, you know, I realize this is a pretty big topic, but maybe you can give some general kind of guidelines around some of those differences and considerations. Yes. Uh, you know, again, it's a spectrum of risk and, and what amount of risk the investor wants to take in dispensing with formalities. Uh, you know, oftentimes we'll have family members get together, uh, two brothers, and they'll go in and buy an apartment building thinking that they'll always get along fine. Um, and so that maybe they didn't bother with having uh, an LLC operating agreement that addresses things like what if one of us wants to sell? What if one of us dies? What if one of us is sued and has a creditor trying to seize our interest? So, uh, I guess to answer your question, I always recommend that clients uh, consider having these sorts of agreements in place, these formalities followed. Uh, but it's true that uh, some investors feel it's unnecessary. They're confident that there won't be disputes and problems. And unfortunately, there sometimes are. Um, it doesn't take much to uh, create a problem, especially in a bad economy. And uh, the consequences of there being a problem are often disastrous. Um, the expense of litigation, even if a case doesn't go to court, uh, just hiring a lawyer and having the lawyers exchange, uh, you know, aggressive demand letters back and forth is in itself a very expensive process and best to avoid that with agreements that are clear and, and uh, enforceable ahead of time. Okay. So, um, for some of those people, though, who are maybe wanting to do something a little bit more involved, you know, the, there's kind of a fancy word out there, syndication, um, that people use. They want to be syndicators. You know, what is kind of the process maybe involved with that and some of maybe the approximate cost? I mean, you know, my understanding is it's quite a bit more than, you know, what we were talking about earlier of just, you know, setting up an entity and kind of, you know, off to the races. It's, uh, can you comment on syndications at all? Yes. Um, and it's a... It's an interesting area with a lot of uh, risk, uh, but also some potential great rewards. Uh, in general, you know, individual investors often get together with close friends or family, and uh, they all chip in something, and they go out and buy an investment, and they co-own the LLC that owns the investment. That's a pretty common scenario. Um, you know, that's fine. Uh, to uh, maybe gloss over some of the formalities in those circumstances, especially if, and this is the important part, all of the investors are going to actively participate in management. And that means they're going to get to attend meetings, they're going to be getting reports, they're going to get to vote, they're going to get to make help make decisions. They don't have to participate in management down to the point of pounding nails on the apartment building, uh, but they certainly 
need to have the right to visit the apartment building and meet with the property manager and actively participate in decisions about all that. If they're actively participating in management, uh, as I'm describing, then we don't have to worry nearly as much about the uh, laws that require uh, a lot of red tape and compliance. And what I'm talking about are commonly referred to as the blue sky laws, also known as securities laws. Uh, each state and the federal government all have their own set of securities laws and they're very comprehensive and they're very strict. And the, com and the consequences of non-compliance uh, can be catastrophic. Uh, so we, you just don't wanna have a problem with security law compliance. Uh, but uh, you, you have to start worrying about that if you're engaging in what often is called syndication. Now syndication means you're out there soliciting uh, strangers to invest in your project. And you're syndicating this by uh, promoting it amongst various investors and investor groups. Uh, that's when you gotta be really careful. You need to be working with a securities lawyer. You need to have um, documents that prove that you disclosed all the financial information and all the risks to each and every potential investor. <clears throat> and I'll just say, the consequences of not doing that are these. When you have a disgruntled investor that bought into the project, uh, but then is unhappy with its performance, they get to demand their money back and they get to get interest paid on their money and they don't have to wait. They, they, you don't get to tell them, look, we'll get you your money back, but just be patient. We're gonna sell the project in a year and you'll get it back. No, the, the investor, the this disgruntled investor gets to demand his money back immediately. And here's the scary part. The disgruntled investor gets to demand it personally from anybody that promoted the investment. That is the founder, the, the person that syndicated the investment, uh, any other co-founders or co-owners that participated in promoting the investment and get this, even the lawyers and the accountants that participated in the documents and preparing documents to promote the investment. Wow. So the moral wow. of that story is <laughs> if everybody could be liable, you'll have a hard time finding a lawyer or an accountant that will help you promote an investment unless it's clear there's going to be full compliance with the securities laws. Yeah. And, and I think that, I mean, if that doesn't scare you enough already, I mean, I think you can actually go to jail for violating <laughs> securities rules too, as well. So not, not something you want to play around with. Well, that's right. Um, some people have heard of the SunWest promotions that occurred oh, about 10 years ago. And it is true that the founder of the SunWest uh, empire is currently in jail uh, for promoting investments without complying with securities laws. And uh, I will point out that a, a major prominent downtown Portland law firm got caught up in it as well. And personally, the uh, or one of the attorneys in that firm was held personally liable for having helped uh, write the documents that promoted the investment that didn't comply with securities laws. So these things happen and uh, lawyers and accountants are very, very uh, careful about this. Well, that, that's really some great insight because, um, you know, sometimes you, as investors, you see a deal, you need money, you put the cart before the horse, you start asking around to see who can help you qualify and get into it. And then, you know, the economy uh, takes a little bit of a dip or you made the wrong call or didn't calculate or bit off more than you can chew, which really puts you in a, in a tight spot. 
So, um, you know, that's certainly something to keep in mind. At what point would you say, Steve, okay, start considering full security syndication compliance? Is it outside of your immediate sphere that you go to barbecues with? Is it when um, one of your clients um, has extra money they need to put into a 1031 exchange and invites you to participate? At what point do you say, okay, this is crossing the line? I think that's um, the challenging part for a lot of investor clients of ours. Yes, I think um, a good lawyer tells every single client that every single investor is a potential claimant. And then the client has to make the decision. Um, it's, you know, uh, it's, it's clearly very risky if you're talking about strangers that just met over a barbecue for the first time. Maybe the client will, will tell me they think it's less risky because after all, this is my brother-in-law and we've been best friends for life. And I just smile and say, okay, well, you're still going to be at risk. And if you want to accept that risk, then you get to go forward. But I can't be the guy that prepares your documents for you. Because if your brother-in-law turns on you, he's going to turn on me as well. And we're all going to be responsible. So um, there are things that uh, the promoter can do to minimize the risk and should do uh, in all cases. Um, and the biggest thing of all, of course, is full disclosure, a full and accurate disclosure of all the facts going into the deal, um, not just the obvious financial things, but every little risk factor that there might be. Um, that goes a long ways toward minimizing the risk of a claim and, and actually uh, protecting the target of the claim if um, the disgruntled investor wants to demand their money back. Okay. All right. So, you know, a lot of people talk about incorporating in tax favorable states. What, what's the benefit of doing that? And then once it's formed in one state, can you move that entity to another state? So I have, um, I'll say, some limited experience with that. And uh, I'm sure there are other, uh, others with greater expertise than, than what I have. But uh, first of all, it is true that some states are more uh, favorable for real estate ownership. Nevada, for example, is pretty famous for not having uh, ag aggressive taxes that apply to you know, various transactions and ownerships. Um, you know, the, the question is, do you want to invest with property that's located in Nevada? It, it's not gonna do you any good to own property in the state of Washington, thinking you're gonna avoid the Washington uh, tax structure by having the property held in a Nevada LLC. It just doesn't work that way. Uh, so for, for an example, uh, if a Nevada LLC owns an apartment building in Vancouver, Washington, and you sell the apartment building, well, that Washington transfer tax is still gonna apply to that transaction regardless of the fact that it's, an, it's a Nevada LLC. Um, to answer your question, it is possible to uh, move the situs of an LLC or a corporation to a different state, um, but it's not always easy to do. Um, uh, the simplest, most common approach is to simply dissolve the first LLC and form a brand new one in the new state. Um, that's the most obvious, doable way to transfer the location of an LLC. But, you know, there's problems with that. and. In the eyes of the IRS, that could be a dissolution uh, that 
resulted in assets being distributed, okay, that's a tax-free distribution. Uh, but then where the, tr- where the assets transferred from one set of owners to another, maybe that was a sale and triggers income tax, even when the assets are then just recontributed to another entity. So there's, mm-hmm. there's a lot of risk uh, with changing locations of an LLC. Uh, best is to uh, carefully pick the jurisdiction to begin with and not have to worry about that. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about exit strategy. If I'm building a portfolio and I'm planning on leaving those real estate investments behind a family when I die, what are some strategies to simplify that? Because, I mean, I know for me, if I get hit by a truck today, um, that could be a, a pretty big can of worms for my wife to try to figure out, um, you know, during the grieving process especially, but just in general, it's a fairly complicated um system of LLCs that I have with the different investment properties that a lot of that's in my head. So what, what are some good um, exit strategies there? So the, the best strategy that I always recommend is LLC ownership, if it's at all possible. Now, if you have a lender that's going to, you know, uh, object, that may not be possible. But uh, when it comes to estate planning, holding property in an LLC has several advantages. Um, one of which is that it's a a great way to have partial interest be spread among multiple family members. So if something were to happen to you, Matt, after all the celebrating, I mean, mourning is over, <laughs> then uh, your family members, uh, maybe there's, you know, maybe the ownership of this uh, real estate empire you've built up is going to be now divided amongst uh, your spouse and your three children. And that's complicated in itself, but it's going to be more complicated if you didn't have an LLC. The neat thing about an LLC is it provides for centralized management of the entire empire. So that's, that's one of the first things I would point out. I will also point out that from an estate planning standpoint, an LLC is a wonderful vehicle for transferring partial interests in property. So, you know, if you just own a big plot of land, you could uh, transfer partial interest in that big plot of land by doing deeds annually uh, to your children or grandchildren or whatever, as maybe a strategy to help uh, start distributing wealth down to the next generation and, and reduce your own estate tax problems. Well, far easier to transfer, uh, uh, ownership interests in an LLC that owns the property rather than actually recording a deed each year to transfer some fractional interest in the title. That's just one example of many where using an LLC has advantages when it comes to um, estate planning and planning for an exit um, in, in the selling or, or passing along uh, wealth to the next generation. So at, at what point are we considering putting the properties or entities into a trust and how do the entities interact with that trust versus properties? Well, good question. Um, incidentally, just to distinguish, I don't recommend uh, having assets, having real estate owned directly by a family trust, but rather have that real property owned by an LLC uh, and have the LLC owned by the family trust. And I know, I think that's what you're asking about. Um, 
backing up the whole point of having a trust while you're alive, two main points. One is to avoid probate upon your passing and also to provide a convenient mechanism for ongoing management of your wealth during periods of disability. So as we all know, there's, it's common to go through a period of decline uh, before one passes away. And during that period, uh, uh, there's, there's still an ongoing need for management. And, and having property owned in an LLC and the LLC owned inside of a trust is a great way to allow that management to, con to continue seamlessly. Um, and of course, when you pass, the actual uh, process of, of uh, handing down the ownership of your wealth uh, if it's owned in a trust, that's going to go much more smoothly, quickly, less expense, because the general concept is that a living trust is a great way to avoid probate. Um, and the, the probate of uh, the process of probate, of course, has a million drawbacks, especially in real estate. Uh, number one being that it's not private. In other words, it's a public record and everybody on the planet gets to look at your probate file and see what you had and how it's valued and uh, learn all about your assets. And in the real estate world, uh, a lot of times we want to keep those things confidential. Uh, there's a, a lot more that can be said about the process, uh, the probate process and advantages of, of avoiding it. But the short answer is yes, a living trust is a great way to do that. Excellent. So I understand you're not a mortgage broker or a 1031 exchange accommodator, but are there any flags or cautions that you would give in regard to those two roles here um, as far as uh, using an entity to buy or sell property? I mean, like, for instance, I know that, um, you know, the same entity that sells a property in a 1031 exchange also has to acquire the, the, the next property. So if I own 50% of a property under Matt Williams LLC and I go to purchase a new property, but my partner doesn't want to go into it as well. I can't take that entity um, unless I'm buying him out or I, um, you know, there's some ways around that, but there are some complications to it. it has to be in the same name. So are there, are there anything in regard to those two aspects that you would, you would comment on? Yes. I'm, it's a, you're, you're hitting the nail on the head. It's a common problem that uh, multiple owners of an LLC don't all have the same agenda about what to do when it comes to selling the property. And, uh, as I know you've touched on in a prior podcast, uh, this whole area of 1031 exchanges uh, is a terrific um, uh, beneficial area to uh, defer income tax. And it might just be that most uh, or at least some of the owners of a project want to use 1031 to avoid the taxes, whereas some of the investors in the LLC don't. And so you have a problem. How do they go their separate ways? How does one person get cash and the others get to stay behind and do a 1031 exchange? So there are solutions to that. Um, a lot of different ways of going around, <clears throat> of, of going about solving that. One of the common ones is that the uh, investor who wants to go his separate way is actually bought out um, sometime before uh, selling the property. And then at, at closing, the investor that wants out gets his cash and goes away and pays income tax on his cash, whereas the LLC uh, uses 1031 to continue deferral of the tax on their gain, and they go on and invest in the next uh, project. Uh, that's just one solution. There are several others, uh, but it's a complex area and requires a lot of planning and discussing in advance of the sale of the property. 
Great. Well, you know, Steve, you've really been a wealth of knowledge today. I really appreciate that. We're going to, um, unless you have anything that you want to um, just cruise over in regard to this subject, we'd like to get into some questions to get to know you a little bit better before we close out. That sounds great. Yeah. So it looks like uh, I'm going to be asking you the first question here, Steve. Um, and I think that, you know, perhaps especially with everything going on in the face of COVID, maybe this is uh, been something you've contemplated a little bit more, but is there an aha moment you've had in the past year that has changed how you approach some part of your career investment strategies or even your personal life? Uh, <laughs> I would say the aha moment was reflecting on how easy it is to work from home. Um, lawyers have these big expensive offices and we find that these days we're doing just fine working from home and, and uh, having only occasional meetings at our offices. <laughs> so it makes me wonder about the whole uh, commercial real estate market in metropolitan centers and whether or not law firms will continue to occupy big lavish offices when they maybe don't need them. Yeah, no, I mean, that's a great insight. And I, I mean, I can't, if you own office space, you're probably, uh, panicking right now. So I, I definitely think that that uh, is a great insight. Um, can you maybe tell us about an important ritual you have and do every day? A ritual that I have and do every day. I, I will say that um, I kind of try to avoid rituals. Um, sorry about that. But uh, I find that one of the benefits of being a lawyer uh, is that you get to uh, be uh, independent and free to reconfigure your schedule and the, the kind of work you do, you know, virtually every day. And so I enjoy mostly uh, just mixing it up, whether it's working from home part of the time or uh, uh, engaging in projects where I'm uh, doing legal research or drafting of documents. Um, all those various tasks are what keeps the, the practice of law interesting and challenging. Um, but I will say the one ritual I have is trying to get exercise of some sort virtually every day, whether it's running or swimming or, or lifting weights. Nice. Nice. Exercise is a good one for sure. Uh, let's see here. So, you know, another question, how, how do you measure success? Oh, that's easy. It's satisfaction and enjoyment. I think everyone gets, their satisfaction and enjoyment of life from something different. I personally enjoy and am very satisfied by helping clients with legal issues. It's just tremendously uh, fulfilling to uh, work with clients that at first are stumped on how they're going to go about solving a problem or putting together a deal. And then uh, we work on it together and uh, brainstorm and, and come up with a good, reliable solution. And I, I just find that very, very enjoyable, uh, helping people solve problems. Great. Well, it sounds like you're in the right profession then. Feels like it to me. Yes. <laughs> Steve, if you could have dinner with one person dead or alive, who would it be? Huh, that's an interesting question. I would say Winston Churchill. He was a man who maintained calm and humility through such incredibly challenging, difficult times. And uh, seemed to be an effective leader of a country that was in dire straits. Plus, I just enjoy people that have a British accent. <laughs> well, that does help. 
Yeah, it's interesting uh, with Winston Churchill to see him portrayed in different uh, documentaries or um, you know movies that are supposedly based on uh, historical events and how um, the difference in people's perspective of his role at the time, who he was, and whether he was just a uh, you know a staunch grouchy old man or if he was a, a strategical genius. You know, it's he he is an interesting character in history for sure. Yes, and I agree. There are a variety of historical uh, perspectives on who he really was. Yeah. So, I mean, if you had to choose, would it be whiskey or wine? Oh, wine, definitely. Any particular type? Red, white? Is there one recently that you've stumbled on that you really enjoy? Well, lately, the uh, the Rodney Strong Chardonnay is very delicious and reasonably priced. I also think Sterling uh, Chardonnay is is reasonably priced. Um, I think um, there's a number of really good wines that are comparatively inexpensive and enjoyable. And they, of course, the red wines have those citrus bioflavonoids. So we're really talking about a healthy beverage. (laughs) Yes. In moderation, of of course. In moderation, of course. Yeah. Well, good. You know, thanks very much for coming in and spending some time with us today, Steve. How can our audience get a hold of you and uh, view your information? So all they need to do is go to my law firm's website. It's Farley, F-A-R-L-E-I-G-H, Farley Wada Wit. And if they just put in Farley into their browser and look for a Portland law firm, they'll uh, they'll come up with us. Uh, we're in downtown Portland and... Uh, uh, right now, the building is pretty boarded up like a fortress because of current events, but normally uh, we have uh, a very welcoming environment, and I invite uh, individuals to contact me by phone or email. I'm happy to have initial consultations over the phone and see if um, I can be of help to a client. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. If you find this show valuable, we have two favors to ask. The first is, please subscribe to our podcast. The second, would you give us a review? The more subscribers and the more reviews we have, the better the show, the better the guests. Thank you again, Steve, for coming in. We really appreciate it. And until next time, invest in the West. Mm